Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. And things have been quiet um, at the end of the month in terms of what's going on in the world. And so I thought we'd do one of our infrequent but interesting roundups of the news, where we are, the world at the end of February 2024. You guys have liked the earlier ones in the community, and so it seemed a good time just to sum up where a series of long-running stories about geopolitical risk are um, as we head into March. Um, just to let you know about the book, exciting news, uh, our trip, John Goodnight and I are going to be in New York and D.C. And again, we will do uh, video diaries or at least audio diaries of the trip to keep you up to date in the next two weeks, uh, two weeks out now. Uh, we have the salon dinner for the Stand Together Alliance, the Koch Foundation, uh, where we talk to very important folks in the Koch Foundation about our book, The Last Best Hope, and begin to really push it hard. Uh, obviously, I'm doing interviews around the country, did one last night, doing another one today. We plan to do 60 in the next two months to really talk to the country about The Last Best Hope. This is a populist book, and our marketing method is populist, and so I'm very excited about that process. We've had a series of really great calls um, and videos uh, about the book. We'll put some of them online as we go, but rest assured we are moving ahead with that as we speak to make things go, and uh, things look very good. But this is exciting on the trip. We go to the Koch Foundation for their salon dinner. It's very prestigious in New York. Um, everyone dresses up. And in JFK fashion, for me, it's particularly interesting uh, to use JFK terminology. I'm bringing Jackie and Bobby with me. Sarah's coming over uh, in her Italian sense, dressed to the nines, I'm sure, uh, to help support me uh, in the first part of the trip to New York. And I'm very grateful. I rarely get to travel with her. So that's a great treat for me. And Sancho Panza, my right-hand man, John Goodnight from the firm, is coming up. My Bobby is coming up uh, to talk to clients. We're going to meet with our friends uh, um, at Credit Agricole, uh, one of our long-term, long-standing clients, um, and, and Kashif Zephyr, my good friend there. Um, we're gonna have dinner with Kashif, who we go way back, and he's been a creative force in my life, and I love thinking with him and the firm about what's going on. We're doing actually a Zoom call with them and their clients next week, which is exciting. And then my friend Tom Feza, from Deloitte, another valued client we think together. Uh, often, I just got off the phone with Tom yesterday, but we're going to have uh, lunch and then go on to he's coming to the dinner, the salon dinner, just to see a very different ecosystem of Republicans <laughs> uh, rather than business people at the dinner. And so I think that'll be interesting for them and for Tom. And then Sarah's flying back home to Milan and John and I are catching the Amtrak down to D.C., where we have very, very exciting news. Uh, we're meeting uh, with my friend Bridge Colby, who's a leading voice on the rise of China, maybe the leading voice on the rise of China. I'm looking forward to seeing Bridge. And then we're going to have a very exciting meeting, senior House Hill staffers, the people that make our foreign policy in the House of Representatives. In Congress, uh, we've had a meeting set up where I'm gonna talk about the book to them, as well as people in the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson's office. So it's a very exciting beginning to a D.C. trip. We're then going to see people in the Trump campaign about what's going on and talk about the book. So a very, very exciting week, and I will involve you in that as we go. But of course, we'll keep these coming from the road or wherever we are. And 
Today I'm in the kitchen having my espresso with you all. And if you hear a noise in the background, that's the cats coming and going, the cat flap. But it seemed quieter. The workmen are upstairs and I wanted to get one out. And where we are seemed the way to go. So let's go around the horn. Where are we with the major crises of the world? And one of the reasons I haven't been writing or speaking is that we've been right. That from our point of view in a political risk firm, there's always the tendency to do more, to do too much. Whereas Lord Salisbury, the great British prime minister, said once, perhaps apocryphally, do nothing. It's almost always the best course. Well, I don't know if it's almost always the best course, but doing nothing can be the right course. And if you're on course trajectory-wise in your political risk, yes, you can, you can say we were right. You can say things continue as we thought but it doesn't make for a very compelling argument, whereas people scrambling to prove they weren't wrong, uh, which is most of my competitors, have to do that. We don't. And frankly, across the horn right now, we've been right, and we're looking to see what the next step will be. It's a really interesting part of the process. So let's look at what I mean. In Ukraine, we were right. The war is a stalemate. We've been saying this for over a year while the wishcasters have been dreaming of a Ukraine victory that just simply isn't backed up by facts that we called at the time that the vaunted Ukraine offensive of the summer of last year would amount to nothing because of Russian mining, unprecedented mining of the territory, and because of Russian numbers, and they've learned from their mistakes. And indeed, the offensive was wasted in Bakhmut, where President Zelensky made this into a Verdun-style quagmire when Bakhmut has almost no strategic value, but like Verdun, was imbued by both sides with symbolic value. But the strategic argument remains the same. No movement of the front lines. World War I in the front lines. The Russians control roughly 20% of Ukraine then. They control roughly 20% of Ukraine now. That's a stalemate. The problem with a stalemate is it means the Russians are winning. Why? Because they have three to four times the population of Ukraine, and in a stalemate, those with the most numbers eventually win out. They have their own native defense industrial complex industry, which is churning out shells at a rate of five to one. They have a five to one advantage in artillery shells at the moment in the war. It's an overwhelming advantage because of their own native defense industrial complex and also their ties to countries like Iran and North Korea, which are providing them with defense wherewithal in greater numbers than is a divided United States about continuing its overwhelming support for Ukraine, as well as a Europe that has ever underperforms. The latest example of this, and it would be funny if it weren't tragic, it's tragicomic, is the mouse that roared. And by that I mean Emmanuel Macron of France, the mouse that roared. Uh, Macron is saying things like, gee, he's just discovered there's a war in Ukraine. And he's saying things like, well, maybe we shouldn't leave off the table that NATO put troops on the front line. He said this just yesterday. And of course, this was met by amusement and horror in equal measures. The Russians pounced on this to mention dryly the fact that the Europeans don't have an army or the wherewithal to do this, being the mouse that roared. But on the other hand, that if NATO did get involved in the war, this would lead to a massive escalation, which is true. And immediately everyone else horrified said, that's not the plan. Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, said that's not the plan. Poland said that's not the plan. Every other state in NATO, with the exception of Lithuania, said that's not the plan. But my favorite was Robert Habeck, the senior minister, Green, senior minister in the German coalition, 
who dryly pointed out the fact that the French are not even living up to their present goals to provide ammunition for Ukraine, that the French, unlike the Germans and the British, the second and third largest givers of military aid to Ukraine, the United States is miles ahead, and then come the Germans and the British, the French are next, but the French are providing aid in an anemic manner. And Habeck's comment was, rather than talk about all this nonsense, he has a simple policy suggestion for Macron, send more artillery shells. And that's indeed right. So the French are, are indulging in performance art, uh, ignore, with magical thinking as though somehow they are a great power, when Putin has pointed out again a weakness that we've brought up just last week, the, they, the Europeans don't have a foreign policy, they have an economy growing at nothing, and they have total division over what to do, meaning they are a weak, declining power. And this was pointed out by Macron being the mouse that roared by, as ever, overstating European efficacy. It just underlines the fact that Russia's winning the battle of the stalemate. It has more people, more wherewithal, more both in, in terms of domestic wherewithal, but also in terms of shells coming from Iran and North Korea, as opposed to a feckless EU, who t is, is, is all had and no cattle, to quote the Texans. And so that's where we are. The interesting fact is that the money, for the $60 billion uh, for Ukraine that's hung up in the House of Representatives, because the Republicans as a group have decided that endlessly wasting money on Ukraine, a second-order priority, is not as important as, for instance, securing the American southern border, which is, to put it mildly, porous, or deal with things like America's failing education system, its $34 trillion deficit, or an opioid crisis that is killing more people than died in Vietnam. And so all these other matters have led a majority of Republicans, uh, a CNN poll on this had 71% of Republicans, an overwhelming majority, say enough is enough. We should stop wasting aid to Ukraine. Because remember the Roosevelt rule. The only thing the United States should actively intervene or balance against is when a great power threatens to dominate either Europe or Asia. Nobody can dominate Europe. For goodness sake, Putin can't even take uh, Kiev, let alone Western Ukraine, let alone a NATO country. It's a fantasy being peddled about. And Macron mentioned this fantasy again. Everyone knows that NATO's next. Nobody knows that NATO's ne next. What this war has proven is the weakness of Russia, not its strength. It can't even take over Ukraine when everybody thought that would be a snap. And so nobody, no, I'm not worried about Milan. I'm not worried about Berlin. I'm not worried about Paris or London. This isn't the Cold War. This is a declining regional power barely slogging to victory in its next door neighbor, bereft of, of, of capitalism, corrupt, inept, and it can barely take over part 20% of the eastern part of the country. This is not scaring anybody. This scaremongering. Neil Ferguson, and this is a world war. We have to do everything everywhere all at once. The only danger here is doing what Ferguson says, seeing it as a world war when it's not. And that's where we are. On to issues like Gaza, again, got that right. The United States has supported Israel. Uh, Biden is increasingly, though, nervous because domestically he's under great pressure. Uh, the Michigan primary has just been this morning or the results came out in Europe today. And Trump predictably won by 40 points over the last neocon standing. We may, we may do a podcast on Nikki Haley. I already did one comparing her to fool's gold that she wasn't going to win the Republican primary. Got that one right, despite being the hope of the mainstream media 
fervently anti-Trump as it is. Uh, and now we see Nikki Haley losing by 40 points. The interesting thing is she's the last major neocon standing. This is the end of something very important, which is the neocon dominance of the Republican Party. And if you see the numbers, uh, Haley lost um, in South Carolina, registered Republicans to Trump 70-30, and indeed over Ukraine and whether to be engaged in a fundamental way, 71% of Republicans say enough. These numbers are, 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 are correlated, that, that a majority of the party, 70 to 30, and which is what John Goodnight and I thought when we began the book, 70 30, a majority of the Republican Party is Jacksonian and Jeffersonian, the people we wrote the book for. That was the political risk gamble we took in writing the book. It was a political gamble to then write a policy book. The book makes no sense unless you accept the Jacksonians and Je Jeffersonians are now running the Republican Party and the neocons are out. And that way, Nikki Haley is indeed a canary in the coal mine and her being trounced by 40 points just proves that, boy, did we get that right, as we absolutely had to. It's a crucial link in our argument. I freely admit that. And it's been proven to be right. But Biden is worried, of course, in Gaza about Arab Americans in Michigan. Let's be specific. There's a large number, fairly well-organized community within the Democratic Party there, and they just voted 10 to 15 percent of Arab Americans spearheading an uncommitted campaign. And although Biden won because he has no real challenger in the primary, 10 to 15 percent voting against him in an uncommitted manner, unless he call an immediate ceasefire or get the Israelis to accept a ceasefire immediately, is trouble. As Trump rightly said yesterday, if we win Michigan, we win the whole thing. And Biden is down in the real clear politics of, uh, of aggregate polls. The average is outside the margin of error. He's down in the real clear politics aggregate by 5.8%, I think, as of yesterday, which is six points significantly. And now there's this danger of domestic problems within the Democratic coalition. That involves specifically Arab Americans in a specific state that they need to win Michigan, but also young people who are about even incredibly in support for Trump and Biden as they've deserted the progressive woke left and deserted Biden again over the election. So although he's been for Israel, Biden is acutely aware that he needs to put the brakes on and he's trying to do that. And the Israelis just aren't biting. The Israelis care about their national interests and not Joe Biden's political interests. They have managed to very successfully, up to now, win the war. Let's use a word that isn't used enough, win the war. They have, they have gone in and they've, they've taken over all the major cities in Gaza, with the exception of Rafah in the south, where over a million Palestinian refugees are sheltering. Also, what's left of the command structure, Yahya Sinwar, the man who, who led the absolutely barbaric attack on terrorist attack on Israel, He's sheltering there along with the senior in-house Hamas leadership. The external Hamas leadership, by the way, and I've been there, lives in luxury in Qatar, uh, which is pretty risable. Uh, but the internal in-house people are sheltered in Rafah. And they're trying to work out a deal to get the, a number of Israeli hostages out. The number is mooted at around 40% in return for a six-week ceasefire. I don't think this matters. I mean, I think if they get that, that's fine. Because Netanyahu, and we've talked about his position before, is in this Kafka-level position where he has to not give in to the right wing of, he has to not ignore the right wing of his coalition, or he's out, indicted, maybe goes to jail, his political career is over, but he can't totally ignore the centrists who run the war cabinet 
like Benny Gantz, the most likely next prime minister, no fan of the duplicitous Netanyahu. So he has to kind of float between these two. Uh, the reality is that he's doing so. He's saying to Gantz and the others, um, look, Ashgabat, uh, the, Gabby Ashgabat, the general whose son died tragically in the war, uh, in the war cabinet, he's saying, look, I'm going to go ahead and do the hostages deal as you like, while saying to the right wing, and then after that, we'll go and flatten Rafa after the 40 days are up. And so Netanyahu is managing, as he always does, he's tactically Harry Houdini. There is no strategy, but tactically, he's beyond nimble. Um, he's managing to make this work. It's this internal dynamic and not any pressure from the outside. The United States doesn't have that kind of leverage. When people mention to me about Israel, you should tell the Israelis to do something. I always laugh at meetings and say, you obviously have never been in a meeting between the United States and the Israelis. We don't tell them what to do. We, we're allies, but it, there's a fair bit of shouting at these meetings. And the Israelis have a well-articulated sense of their own national interests. And although we can put pressure on them at the edges, that's all Biden can do. And so look for things, again, steady as she goes, as is true in Ukraine. Look for things to continue. Say they sign this deal. In 40 days, the Israelis will be right back to going to Rafah. The key question is twofold in Gaza, as always. What happens after the war? Can we get rid of the corrupt, sclerotic, inept, breathtakingly inept, even for the Middle East, breathtakingly inept, Abu Mazen um, and his sclerotic leadership of the Palestinian Authority, put in new people like the jailed Marwan Barghouti, perhaps Mohammed Dalen, the former strongman for the PA in Gaza. Can they then, the PA, go back in and run Gaza? Or is this going to be a straight-up occupation, which Israel uh, certainly doesn't want? So I'm already thinking ahead to what happens the day after. Um, as I was talking to Tom uh, the other day, can Gaza, can Hamas be truly eradicated? Probably not, but you can mow the lawn. You can get rid of the current leadership. You can cut it back. You can dismantle the tunnels. You can dismantle the command structure internally and then wait for it to grow back. That may be the reality of what's going on here. But the day after and dealing with Hamas are one issue and the other issue is don't let this thing get out of hand. Uh, so far, so good. As I said, the canary in the coal mine remains Hezbollah and the north. This is the crown jewel of the terrorist movement of Iran's terrorist coalition. And as long as they don't go to overt war with the Israelis, uh, things will remain localized and just fine. And that's where we are right now. So again, as is true with Ukraine, for all these calculations, it's, uh, it's steady as you go. And then there's actually some good news out in the Indo-Pacific. And I, I always like to end with positives. We don't look at the positives enough and we don't, in political risk, even the name is negative. Risk is a negative thing rather than being risk and opportunity, which is really what we do. How do you mitigate the risks and how do you deal with the upside of the opportunity? And as we've said, let's take a big picture look at the Indo-Pacific. There's a ton of upside here. This region of the world is where most of the world's future economic growth will come from without a doubt, as well as most of its future political risk. But if we can manage a world that by the end of the next century, let's take the biggest of big picture views, there'll be three superpowers in the world, the United States, India, and China. That's a world I can happily live in. That's a world where two of those superpowers, India and the United States, can be the ordering power while managing China in a competitive manner, hopefully not militarily competitive, but in a politically and economically competitive manner, short of war, where they are all part of this new system. But a world that is an Anglosphere world with an Asian twist, which is what this world seems to be, 
that's a world we can all be very happy with. However, we have to get from A to B, from where we are to there. And as you know, I think China's a peaking power that it has, again, we never look at our enemy's problems. It has immense problems. First and foremost is demography. The rate of, uh, the rate of replacement in China is down to about one, meaning the population will be halved in a generation. It's extraordinary. And uh, unremarked upon nearly enough. So this is the high point of Chinese power. There's just not going to be enough Chinese people. And indeed, already we see that India has gotten the better of China and is now the largest populated country in the world, also the largest growing great, great economic power in the world at the moment is also India. So there we go. This is all moving in that direction. And indeed, by 2026, it's estimated that India will become the third largest economy in the world after the United States and China. This is all good news. We have to, though, as it's a peaking power due to demography, due to local government debt, due to youth unemployment numbers that are so depressing, they've stopped publishing them in China, uh, due to the state-owned enterprises sucking off all the growth in China, due to Xi over-centralizing everything and being, frankly, inept. I, I, compared to Deng Xiaoping, a master strategist, Xi has scared the horses by bullying the region and throwing India, Factory Asia, South Korea, Japan into America's waiting arms by his approach, as well as Australia. Um, all of this is good. We just need time for it to bet in. The quadrilateral initiative of great power um, India, great power Japan, Anglosphere country Australia, and superpower America, the AUKUS defense deal with Australia, the UK, and the US, and new alliances, revived alliances, such as the American alliance with the Philippines, where we see Bong Bong Marcos now signing military deals with the United States, uh, Duterte cozied up to China to no avail, and Marcos has gone back to the kind of standard pro-American tilt of Filipino foreign policy. And critically, the northern Philippine islands, which are just 80 miles away from Taiwan, just 80 miles away, basing there. There are talks going on about the United States being able to base troops, if necessary, in the northern Philippines to the shrieks of horror of the Chinese. This is all very good news. This means that with Okinawa um, and the northern Philippines and these alliances betting in, a credible deterrent is growing. Remember, the danger years for China going as a peaking power when it has to use its power or lose it and become part of the system are about 2027 when a secretary or sorry, CIA director William Burns says that she wants the capability to invade Taiwan from about, say, 2027 to 2030, 32, this is the period of maximum danger where we have to grow things as much as we humanly can. And so that, that is very much the plan at the moment. And this is a little bit of good news, but when strung together with the other pieces of good news, I'm bullish that if we can get over this period, all the growth potential in the Indo-Pacific, it just becomes a huge upside for businesses everywhere. I'm with Bridge that there are real dangers, that we are ignoring it too much to our peril in the United States, that we should focus like a laser beam on the only peer superpower competitor we have, because by the Roosevelt rule, a China dominating Taiwan, the first island chain, then the Indo-Pacific, then Asia, does meet the standards of the Roosevelt rule, meaning we do need to balance, hopefully diplomatically, but if in essence be prepared to fight for, uh, Asia, because we cannot let the Chinese dominate that. Again, by the Roosevelt rule in The Last Best Hope, which is our key insight in that book, I think, the third 
revolution in American foreign policy. The first was with Hamilton in Washington over the Jay Treaty, the second with John Quincy Adams and the Monroe Doctrine, and the third, the Roosevelt Rule. When do you intervene? By this clear law, everything we've set up to now except the Indo-Pacific is second-order noise. Everything is on getting that right. And there I agree with Bridge, and we're behind the curve. There I agree with him, and there's peril, and we need to focus on that. But there's also an awful lot of good news in alliance structures heading our way there, as well as the fact that China has bad news, which in essence in a competitive relationship means America has good news. So that's where the world is at the end of February 2024. Steady as she goes on our predictions, because we've been right about this all along, which is why, thank God, business is booming. One of the things I love about the private sector, as opposed to the public sector, is there's accountability. If you're right dealing with private sector clients, they don't mind paying you double and inviting you back. And if you're wrong, they don't invite you back. They get rid of you. There is accountability based on your analysis. Now, on the other hand, in the public sector, there seems to be no accountability as neocons like the always wrong Ann Applebaum, David Frum, Bill Crystal, Max Boot, go from sinecure to sinecure without anyone ever bringing up to Robert Kagan the fact that he was wrong in cheerleading about the catastrophe that was Iraq. These are the people in Ukraine who brought you the Iraq war. And if we don't hold them accountable to their past flawed predictions, to their cheerleading, to their wish casting, and instead do dispassionate, realist analysis for the greater good of the American people, then we're lost. But I'm hopeful with the last best hope and us moving ahead there's an awful lot to fight for. Heaven and earth are worth fighting for. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed that. Where we are, the world at the end of February 2024. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. And if you have, please do give us the $70 we're asking so I can get price of the espresso I have in front of me and I'm about to down. Please do hand this over to us as a trust for all the great work we're doing. If you believe that we need to change the fundamental direction of America and American foreign policy, it's a small price to pay. And I promise you, to my dying breath, I will continue trying to do so. Uh, talking to the people, going out to the country, trying to change our foreign policy by talking to as many Americans and changing the political basis of the Republican Party. Because as we said in the book, if you change the GOP, you change America. And if you change America, you change the world. Help us on this journey as we take it together. Thanks ever so much. And please do go out and buy the book today. It's available on Amazon everywhere. Have a great day. And now Mandela and I are going to enjoy that espresso.